0: Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 175, Aren't You Dead Yet? Last time, the freighter City of Atlanta had come under attack from U-Boat 123, commanded by Reinhard Hartigan. Of the 47 crew members of the freighter, only three would survive, and they were on their way to New York for medical treatment. But the actions of the early morning of January 1942 were far from over. Hardigan was about to depart for home, but not before scoring a few more kills and adding to his tonnage tally sheet. A few hours after the city of Atlanta went down, Hardigan was told of a few more contacts to the north. In response, the captain ordered U-Boat 123 to position itself to the east of the five vessels coming closer, so they would be silhouetted by the lights coming from the outer bank villages. The sub's mission was almost up, besides there were only two torpedoes left, but Hardigan, a huge fan of his deck gun, was already pondering a way to take out one of the smaller ships with that and reserve a torpedo for one of the trailing Larger vessels. His goal was to go back home with some 200,000 tons sunk by his sub. This would earn him the Knight's Cross. Ignoring the smaller ships, for now, U Boat 123 focused its attention on the American SS Melee, an 8,000 ton tanker. Yet, as it was still dark and only going off radar, the Germans could not see that the Melee was riding high in the water, as her holds were empty of the 70,000 barrels of oil she was able to carry. Ironically, as this empty tanker was heading south, coming ever closer to the German sub, so was a full tanker coming north from below. Either way, daylight would break soon, and the southbound empty tanker would come into range first. Yet Captain Hardigan had devised a plan to follow in the wake of the SS melee, hit her with his deck gun when an opportune time came, and then circle back to sink one of the other ships with his last few remaining torpedoes. If all went well, chaos would ensue, he and his would get away safely, and the Americans would think that numerous subs were operating in these waters. But that's when the Germans planned went pear-shaped. Getting up close to the melee, about 650 feet, Hardigan ordered ten shots from his deck gun. He could see that at least six had either struck the hull or upper decks. Yet the melee carried on. As for the new holes in her hull, each one exposed an empty cargo hold that was sealed off from the rest of the ship. Hence the tanker was just as seaworthy as before. To be sure, several fires had broken out on the fleeing tanker, but the crew's actions were keeping those in check while the ship continued on. By now, Hartigan assumed the melee had sent out a distress call, which meant they could have company soon, and the sub-captain was intent on sinking freighters, not clashing with an equally armed enemy vessel. Ordering a turnabout, Hartigan would settle for one of those ships, still to the north. However, the two leading ships saw the now-flaming melee and took off at high speed. U-boat 123 could not overtake them. This left the attacker with two remaining ships, and fate would have it that the next victim would be the Latvian-owned steam merchant Siltvara, bound for Savannah, Georgia. The unarmed Siltvara, carrying bulk paper to Georgia, was proceeding at nine knots, just off Cape Hatteras. As her crew had been too far away to see the drama that unfolded with the melee, she continued on course. Hartigan let out his second-to-last torpedo, which hit the target on its port side. Right away, the Siltivara slowed down and appeared to be taking on water. Hartigan could see that she was a goner, so started hunting for the fifth ship, hopefully still in the area. Meanwhile, on board the Siltvera, the crew indeed knew they were in trouble. The ship had lost two crewmen to the torpedo's explosion and suffered from a broken back. But she was not going down as fast as she could have been, thanks to the crew's efforts. Still, Captain Carlos Edwards Scarbergs ordered his crew to the lifeboats. A while later, another ship heading north, the Coamo, came into view of the Siltvera, but immediately went to full speed, not wanting to end up in the same dire situation. But later, the American tanker Soccone Vacoon stopped and picked up the survivors. Yet, as they all watched the damaged vessel, it didn't look like she was going down. So the captain and eight crewmen went back aboard her to see if she could be salvaged. The Soccone could not wait around, so continued on to Charleston, South Carolina. Later, the Brazilian steam merchant Bury showed up and agreed to tow the Siltvera to port. But the next day, only able to reach two knots, which made them sitting ducks, the damaged Latvian tanker was released. Eventually, the tug USS Ceuta would try to tow her, but during this run, the Siltvera finally gave up the ghost and went under two days later. But this is not the end of the story, not for the U-Boat 123, not for SS Melee, or even the city of Atlanta, as all this was taking place on the same early morning of January 19th. On board U-Boat 123, Hartigan was updating his war diary as he reported his frustration that the SS Melee's crew had sent out a radio message that said most of the fires had been put out and they managed to get her engines going again. The sub-captain guessed that the damaged melee would have turned back north to head for New York. Unfortunately, by this time, it was 5.30 a.m., the darkest time of night. The melee would probably be able to slip right by the hunter. Then Hartigan got an idea to surface, open the hatch, and smell out the tanker, as the odor of a burning ship was almost impossible to confuse with anything else. Sure enough, a whiff of burnt rubber was detected. The nose of the captain was leading his sub. This went on for about 10 minutes, until suddenly Hardigan and the men with him were blinded by a bright light. Up in the heavens, the light coming down was a star shell, or distress flare, sent up by the wounded Seltvera. Vera. And in that moment, Hardigan spotted the melee, and the melee spotted Hartigan. Also further south, another seeing the bright light, were the men still alive on the city of Atlanta, namely Robert Fennell, George Tavell, and Earl Dowdy. As for the people who lived in Rodanthe, Salvo, and Waves, those that were up this early and saw the light could only assume that war indeed was back to take away more. Of their sailors. For the Germans, the good news was that the SS Melee was not far away. It wouldn't take much to get into torpedo range. The bad news was that if there were any American warships around, the sub was equally exposed. But by now, Hardigan's blood was up. Further, if the Melee got away, his amount of tonnage would drop to the point that he would no longer be eligible for the Knight's Cross. Moving into position, Hartigan checked the solution one more time, and then gave the order. Los! The torpedo was away, its aim true, striking the melee just ahead of its engine room. Later, the German captain, still worked up by the events, would write of the melee's captain, John Dodge, blame yourself for sending a hasty report about being operational. Yet, the entire episode was not quite over. The melee was freshly washed in flames, and though Hardigan would have loved to wait to make sure this enemy went down, as the sun was up, he was completely visible. No, it was time to go. Besides, being in a heavily trafficked passageway, it was only a matter of time before his location was broadcasted to all. But U-123's other problem was, in chasing the melee, the sub was now in waters 33 feet deep, or 10 meters. It was impossible to submerge, should it be required. It was definitely time to go. Ordering his helmsman due east to make for deeper waters, U-123 had not gone far when a 17,000-ton Norwegian whaling ship came into view then came closer, then steered right for the sub, still unable to submerge. Clearly, the Mammoth was looking to ram the sub and crush all within it. Hartigan yelled for the diesels to go to maximum, and soon the sub was achieving 19 knots. Still, the whaler stayed close, turning as the sub turned. The problem was, the larger ship could only go 17 knots. With this, Hartigan knew that if he stayed straight and his engines did not give out, being pushed as they were, in time, he could make good his escape. But should he have to turn for any reason, and the whaler turned tighter than the sub, well, ground, or in this case, water, would be gained. The race for survival was on. Only after two hours of this, it was clear that the sub would not make a mistake, so was able to widen the gap between the pursuer and pursuee. It was then that the whaler slowed down and returned to course. But taking no chances, Hardigan ordered his sub north while still surfaced, which the whaler saw and reported. Only then did the sub go under and turn to the southeast to head for France which was wise as the U.S. Navy Patrol aircraft and surface vessels from Norfolk Naval Base in Virginia searched for the sub, per the whalers' last known information. Once safely away, Hardigan wrote in his log, We can count melee as completely destroyed, a beat of the drum with eight ships, among them three tankers, with 53,060 gross tons. Which was not exactly... True. The crew of the SS Maley, obviously miracle workers, every one of them, dealt successfully with these latest fires, got the engines running again, and limped into Hampton Roads, also in Virginia. Next day, the blackened tanker with holes all over, the decks wrecked, and an uncomfortable-looking tear along its waterline slid into the shipyards of Newport News, Virginia. Of course, the U.S. Navy went after U-123 and told America it was doing so to help restore the people's faith in the military. But the truth was, even if they had found and sunk the sub, that news would have not gone out, as it would inform the enemy. The other sad truth was that the Americans hunting off the East Coast would not actually see a German U-boat for another three months. But just because U-123 was leaving the American East Coast, that did not mean that the four other remaining German subs, first sent over in early 1942, had also departed. As may be recalled from the first episode of this series, U-66 had had a few successes in January as well. And about to do battle with U-66 were two young men, Theodore Moutro, age 20, and Ulysses Levi Mac Womack, age 18. Both had just finished boot camp and were now Coast Guard seamen. Problem was, they had no experience with the sea. But in times like this, needs must. And after Pearl Harbor, many, if not most Americans, would be pulled into duties and responsibilities that they were not ready for. Time would take care of that. But what cannot be passed by before their exceptional story begins was the journey that they had to take just to get to, as they saw it, the end of the world. As their destination was the northeast corner of Ocracoke Island at the end of the peninsula, this journey took several trips by boat, but the most memorable part was two trips driving on the beaches. Again, there were no roads. The first land trip was by bus, the driver, a 13-year-old barefooted boy who had no trouble yelling for his passengers to get out and push whenever the bus got stuck, which happened a few times. The next land trip, near the end of the voyage, was on board a harvester pickup truck, and the petty officer driving did not have the time or the patience to explain how things worked in this world. When they got to the Coast Guard's Hatteras Inlet lifeboat station, again on Ocracoke Island, not Hatteras, because why should things make sense, Theo and Mac were convinced a mistake had been made. How in the hell were they to fight the Germans all the way out here? Which, as it turned out, much to their horror, would not be a problem. For the first two weeks, the most exciting but nerve-wracking thing to happen to the two new recruits was... As they walked along the beach, a part of their duty, they came upon, or were come upon themselves, by lifeboats, numerous, empty lifeboats. The older men explained, whoever cast off in these during some emergency were long gone, lost to the world forever. But it was the third week of their assignment that they found, the war was a lot closer than they thought en route from Port Arthur, Texas, to Halifax, Nova Scotia, was the British tanker Empire Gem, anxious to join a convoy heading to England. Commissioned in October of 1941, the crew had only defensive weapons to protect the ship, but again, the convoy system that the Americans would eventually come around to was supposed to be the main deterrent. Alas, at 7.40 p.m. on Friday, January 23rd, Two torpedoes from U-66 slammed into the gem's aft starboard tank. Now, the sub's commander, Richard Zapp, had waited for the gem, going a bit faster, to get closer to the ship, the Venore in order to have a chance of taking down both. The two torpedoes caused a massive explosion aboard the Empire gem. Its radio operator managed to send off one S.O.S. message before communications were lost. Besides the massive explosion and shooting flame, a mountain of smoke was soon over the ruptured tanker, and it only grew. Meanwhile, at the Coast Guard station on Ocracoke, Theo and Mac heard the old man in charge yell at them, we gotta go and use all the ones that are picked, so let's haul buggy. The two young men were about to find out if they were brave, if their captain knew what he was doing. But one thing was certain. As the wrecked gem was 25 miles due east of Ocracoke Inlet, the slow-moving rescue ship seemed to take forever to get into position. But even then, the two young men would find that they should not have wished to get to the ghastly scene too soon. With the Empire Gem surely doomed, Captain Zapp went after the American freighter USS Venor. Fortunately for the German sub, the fires on the Gem highlighted the American vessel. A single torpedo was sent off, making contact with its intended target. Though the damage, it has to be noted, could have been worse. Not that it mattered, as some of the panicked crew tried to abandon ship without orders from the captain. The result was sadly predictable. As the Venor was still moving at its pre-struck speed, twenty crewmen lowered themselves into two lifeboats. As soon as contact was made with the water, the lifeboats turned over, with water rushing onto the boat and into the men. As the larger vessel was not slowed, the onrushing water continued. All twenty men drowned. Now, the normal fox and hound game was played out by the Venor and the German sub. Yet, within an hour, a second torpedo was fired. The American vessel began to sink into the water. This time, the freighter captain ordered all to abandon ship, while he and the radio operator continued to send out distress calls. Just after the Empire Gem's single SOS signal, movement began along the outer banks. First, a 36-foot motor lifeboat left Hatteras Inlet Station. Then, a few minutes later, a second boat was launched from the Ocracoke Silver Lake Station and ordered to head for the damaged Vanor. But after about 30 minutes, the second rescue craft was ordered to turn northeast to make for the Empire Gem, as her situation and that of her crew was more dire. Yet, the older Coast Guard crewmen knew things that Mac did not. First, their trip would probably take six hours. Next, if the gem was on fire, most of the crew would be already in the water. Hence, the chance that many of them were still alive was remote. But that, as the same was at the time, was the job. As for the Venor, the captain had sent out the broadcast that, as far as he knew, his surviving crew were in lifeboats. They could wait. Around 3 a.m., the boat Mac was in arrived at the Empire Gem scene. It was hell, literally. Flames on the water all around, with smoke and pieces asunder. Some charred, some not. Some human, some not. Though, it was hard to tell the difference. The rescue crew of four from the Ocracoke station came as near to the hole as they could just in time to watch a few british sailors their clothes on fire jump into the water below but even then as mac was to find out it wasn't simply a matter of getting in close and picking these men up the massive sprawling fire generated a wall of heat that could not be penetrated the best the coast guard could do was get close stay close and hoped the men swam to them if they could And it was this lack of action that allowed Mac to take in the smell of burning flesh for the first time, a smell that would stay with him for the rest of his life. Suddenly, three British crewmen were spotted on the gem's bow. Luckily, it was not on fire. The men appeared to be unharmed, but the high waves made it impossible for the rescue vessel, a boat made of wood, to approach the men. A wave might send the smaller boat crashing into the remains of the gem, and then all would need to be rescued. As for the other lifeboat from the Hatteras station, she was circling further out, looking for survivors or lifeboats. Thus far, all that had been found were bodies. At 7 a.m., there was enough sunlight for Mack's ship to see well enough to risk getting closer to the British crew, as in, they could more clearly see the flames and debris they needed to avoid. Trying several times, but unable to outmaneuver the ever-changing burning water that moved with each wave, the frustrated rescue crew finally chose a spot and dashed ahead. The flames were still all around, but they were closer to the men now, who saw what the Americans were attempting and did their part by jumping into the water, hoping to avoid the anchor chains. Mac and the men with him first reached the gem's master, Francis Reginald Broad. Then-chief radio man, Ernest McGraw, was hauled aboard. Now, if they could just get to radio assistant Thomas Orell, they could then try to find a way out. But suddenly, a wave came along and either pushed Orell into a burning wave or the wave of flame into him. Thomas Orrell disappeared right before their eyes. Of the crew of 57, only these two men were still alive, and that was thanks to the bravery or frustration of the Coast Guard crew. Captain Broad and McGraw were switched to the other lifeboat as it was faster. The survivors were taken to Hampton Roads, Virginia, for treatment. Ulysses Levi Mack Womack had just lost his youthful innocence. He was horrified by what he saw. He was grateful to be able to save at least two men. And he was mad as hell at the Germans, saying, well, I'll say one thing. If I could have gotten close enough to one of those Germans, I'd have killed them.